Welcome to the East Career Podcast, brought to you from the East section of career development. I'm Brad Dennis from Vanderbilt University. In this session, we're pleased to have Dr. Samir Fakhari here with us to discuss the business of trauma. Dr. Fakhari is the Charles F. Cruz Professor and Chief of General Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Fakhari has been a member of EAST since 1994 and is currently on the EAST Board of Directors, serving as the Chair of the Seniors Section. In addition, Dr. Fakhari is the current President of the American Trauma Society. Dr. Fakhari, thank you for talking to us about the topic that, sadly, most of us simply don't know enough about, uh, the business of trauma. So, Thank so, you for having me. Thank you. So often, many of us are told that trauma is a money-losing endeavor. Do you believe this is true? Well, it sort of uh, depends on how you interpret that particular expression. Uh, one of the things you learn as you learn more about the business of trauma uh, is that the interpretation of the numbers uh, is the key part of determining whether you're making money or not. And I would encourage people to think of it not so much as uh, money spent versus money collected, but to look at it more from the perspective of what's called the contribution margin um, as far as hospital accounting is concerned. Sure. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit more? What are sort of the things that, that contribute to that and what sort of uh, draw away from it? Sure. Uh, if I could, I'd like to borrow uh, an example that I, that I learned from uh, one of our uh, trauma colleagues, Dr. Paul Tahiri, uh, if you think about how the airline industry functions, uh, there, suppose there's an airplane that has 100 seats that's flying from Charleston, South Carolina, where I am, to uh, Tennessee, where you are, um, and that flight costs $100,000. All costs are $100,000, every single thing you can think of. If you were to take 100 people on that airplane and you wanted to break even, you would charge each of them $1,000. But typically what happens is the airline looks at the historical seat occupancy um, and says, well, we typically fill half the seats on this airplane. So what they do to get all their costs and make a little bit of profit is they charge each passenger that's going to be guaranteed to be on the airplane by historical norms about $2,000. If they did that, they would get their $100,000 of costs covered with maybe a little bit of a profit built in. At that point, the question becomes, what do you do with the other seats? Selling them for $2,000 may not fill them. However, if somebody hears that they can get on that flight for, say, $500, they may buy that ticket. Now, having bought that ticket, they're spending $500. Now, is that a money-losing proposition or is it a money-making proposition? Well, if the first 50 passengers or patients covered all the costs, then another one more person riding on that airplane is not going to really cost $2,000 to fly them. It's going to cost basically a little extra fuel and the price of peanuts. So that $500 may actually represent a lot of profit. And if you go on with this analogy and you fill the rest of the seats with people paying $500, $400, $300, almost any amount of money that those people pay then represents a profit. I think this analogy then illustrates the difference between a simple profit and loss analysis where the trauma patients in your hospital cost a million dollars to look after, you collected $800,000, you are a $200,000 loss to the hospital if you looked at it only in those terms. But if you think about it in the analogy that I described for the airplane, that's not really the case because the way things work is how much it costs to have your patient in the hospital 
is related to really a couple things. There's the direct costs, which include things like fixed costs that have to do with um, money that's spent for uh, that individual patient. And then there's other costs that are indirect costs. For instance, the cost of electricity, the CEO's salary, the heating and cooling, uh, etc. And those costs are then distributed over all the patients who are in the hospital. So in truth, your patient should really be evaluated based not on whether you collected enough money to cover all their costs, including the assigned indirect costs. You should probably look at the trauma patients in a different light and say, if they weren't there, those beds would not be filled. You could not assign the indirect costs or the overhead costs to them. And therefore, those costs would have to be assigned to other patients and raising the cost of the other patient's care would be the result. And that's where the idea of a contribution margin comes in. Instead of talking about the profit and loss, which is what frequently an administrator will tell you when you ask about your patients, you should also ask about what is the contribution margin of my patients. What that is is the direct costs of those patients compared to the collections without including the indirect or overhead. Okay. Now, somebody may say, that's not really fair. You should include your share of the overhead. Well, yes, you could, but you should also look at it without the overhead because if all of a sudden they shut down the trauma program, those overhead costs now have to be redistributed over many other patients. Mm -hmm. So this analogy applies especially to hospitals that are not completely filling their beds and hospitals where uh, those additional empty beds could not be filled with higher-paying customers, for example. So it doesn't apply all the time, but it applies in most cases. Okay. So always ask about the contribution margin because that is a very important consideration because if your program disappeared, that's money that would literally disappear from the hospital's bottom line. Excellent. Well, thank you. What, what do you think the roles of cost containment and sort of cost-effective practices are in improving the, the financial bottom line in trauma care? Well, I think in, in principle, you know, we all should practice cost-effective care. We should not prescribe therapies that aren't likely to work. We should spend money that's not needed, uh, and we should be, you know, careful stewards of the money that uh, people and, and uh, companies pay to receive care, et cetera. Having said that, however, I think we have to be careful so that we don't exaggerate. Um, and, I, and I would suggest that we look at another example that um, – a Princeton economist named uh, Uwe Reinhardt uh, uh, wrote about, which is the idea that getting a patient out of a hospital a day early uh, is somehow or another a great savings of money. And again, this sort of has to do with what we just talked about. If you think about it, if you discharge your patient a day early, the hospital does not immediately save money. In fact, they may not save any money at all. And under the, co the, the current way most payments are structured, which are either capitated or DRG-based, what that patient um, is going to uh, return to the hospital in terms of collections or payments to the hospital is more or less fixed. Getting them out of the hospital a day early doesn't really impact anything unless you have enough patients getting out early to where you can then send one of the nurses home or decrease the amount of uh, labor that's being utilized to support the functions of that hospital. And so th there's a common misconception that one day less in the hospital somehow or another uh, improves the bottom line. Um, and I'd be careful about that because until you have 
enough of the patients going home a day early, and only if you're willing to then decrease the number of nurses or the other contributors to fixed cost, only then will you realize the true savings. The counter-argument to that, of course, is that if you're in fact sending people home early and you empty out some beds that bring in higher-paying customers, that's beneficial. So it turns out that this is not as simple an argument as one would have you, as some people would have you believe. You only benefit uh, sending home uh, a person early, a day early, or uh, a couple of people a day early. That only works if that results in lower fixed costs, such as sending nurses home or firing some of them, or if other patients that return you more money can be brought in to fill those beds. So keeping that in mind, then, should trauma centers be partnering with rehab facilities or skilled nursing facilities and LTACs to free up beds or at least kind of move patients through to accommodate uh, new patients or reduce their overhead costs? Uh, ideally, yes. I think they really should. I, I think the reason to do it uh, should be more a patient-centered reason because the sooner a patient can uh, be part of a rehabilitation program, I, I suspect the better they will do in the long run. And in many other countries, uh, that is inherently part of the healthcare system uh, is that patients are moved from one uh, level of care to another depending on what their needs are, and getting to rehab is actually a lot easier than it is in this country. Um, I would say, though, in terms of the business of trauma, the costs, it, it, it's really that easy, as, as you know. Uh, we don't have enough uh, rehab beds available. Many patients are uninsured. Uh, if they're trauma patients, they have inadequate insurance or have no insurance and it becomes quite difficult to get them into rehab. So the reality of it is, although it's probably best for the patient and likely best for the system from the business perspective to move patients to the appropriate level of care, it may be harder in practice to accomplish that with the limitations that, that we face with our current healthcare system and the uh, disproportionate number of trauma patients who are underinsured or uninsured. Sure. How are the costs of uncompensated care offset for uh, or offset by trauma centers? So it, it, the the classic answer to that one was that uh, basically hospitals made enough money on uh, their uh, leading service lines, whether it was cardiac surgery, cancer, neuroscience, they would make enough money on that to where they would then subsidize uh, the uh, service lines that were not making money, whether it was pediatrics, uh, trauma, emergency uh, medicine, uh, and others. Um, again, remember that you, if you're talking about making money on the bottom line from the profit versus loss statement, uh, that's one way you would look at it, but, but it is possible that you may not make money uh, from the perspective of profit and loss, but you may be providing a substantial contribution margin, which is real money to the hospital. Um, so I would be careful how you interpret that, once again, because just because your assigned costs, that's direct plus overhead, are higher than your collections, doesn't mean that you're not resulting in a net uh, uh, inflow of cash to the hospital that would not be there if you disappeared as a service. Uh, but the fact is mostly the way most organizations do it is they cost shift. They provide money from a profitable uh, service line to a less profitable service line that they feel is an important part of their mission. Now, other ways of doing that uh, have to do with bringing in uh, money to support, say, trauma care uh, from other sources besides either the patient, the insurance company, and that would be from, say, state funds that mm -hmm. are provided. Um, 
In some cases, you would also uh, have to count disproportionate share payments. So if, you're, if your hospital is, you, is receiving a certain amount of money for underinsured or uninsured patients, that's called uh, disproportionate share payments or DISH payments, then some of that money belongs to the trauma service. Uh, your hospital may also be receiving uh, monies from other sources. In some states, for example, Medicaid uh, patients uh, provide hospitals at the end of the year with a certain opportunity for additional revenue uh, that has to do with their Medicaid, Medicaid status. So I would recommend that if you're trying to understand what your trauma services financial impact is on the hospital, you really want to look at a fully loaded uh, financial uh, picture. Look at all the sources of money coming in, whether they're from state trauma funds, whether they're from disproportionate share monies, whether they're from supplemental Medicaid payments, for example, all sources, and also focus more on contribution margin than on the simple difference between total cost, that's fixed plus uh, indirect, uh, as opposed to collections. Excellent. Thank you. Um, how do you think that mid-level providers like uh, PAs and nurse practitioners fit into this uh, into the equation? So that's a very interesting question and, and one that I must say I, I'm still not sure I have uh, figured out in my mind. And, and but, but I sense that uh, we are in a transition phase in all of uh, healthcare, including surgery, uh, where our continued reliance on resonance is no longer a realistic proposition and, and for the people that have resonance. And in the, in the non-academic world, uh, of course, that doesn't apply. But in the academic world where we've relied on resonance for a long time to staff our trauma service, uh, it's, I think, going to be harder and harder to expect that to be the case uh, in the future uh, because the uh, educational mission of a residency training program uh, is eventually going to interfere with their ability to provide service um, to teams like trauma, for example, as will the limitations on their hours. So in our situation, we're, we're, we're now at a point where we have um, uh, a limited number of residents assigned to our service um, because of the demands on other services, and we've become increasingly reliant on advanced practitioners to fill that gap. I'd say my long-term thinking on this is that we will be increasingly relying on advanced practitioners, and we should be looking at ways to make their participation in our work uh, most effective for patient care, but also professionally satisfying for them and supportive of the mission of the trauma program at any particular institution. Um, as they are now evolving to a point where more and more hospitals are allowing them to bill for services, um, that, I think, will also be another consideration uh, because the, uh, the advanced practitioner can help decompress the attending physician's workload, allowing the attending physician to devote more time to things like uh, operations, which are going to return you know, a, a lot more money, a lot more RVUs than, say, E&M functions would. Okay. Uh, let me shift gears for just a minute and say and, and ask about some of the other components of a trauma division. So, how do how does emergency general surgery and surgical critical care fit into the business model of a trauma and acute care surgery division? Well, I think there's, uh, uh, from what I can tell, uh, there are a number of ways you can accomplish um, a sort of a combination. I, I certainly know that there are some services that are 
predominantly trauma care involve uh, a smaller portion of the other uh, components of acute care surgery. Uh, and there are many places now have evolved into what I would think of as uh, more mature, perhaps, or more uh, uh, complicated versions of the acute care model. Uh, my sense of it is that uh, there are multiple reasons to have a service that is uh, not limited to just trauma care, but is an acute care service and in, in its full uh, um, you know, uh, model where you would have trauma care, critical care, and general surgery, both elective and emergency. Some of the reasons for that are um, professional satisfaction of the trauma surgeons, but I think another important reason uh, is some of the economic considerations that come along with that. And, uh, for example, I would uh, uh, venture that in most places the payer mix for the trauma patients is one of the worst, whereas the payer mix for the elective general surgery is uh, among the better ones. Um, the emergency general surgery would be in the middle, as would critical care. Uh, but my experience has been that if you have a service that is uh, both a trauma service and a general surgery service, an acute care, if you will, service, um, you will have uh, a better financial picture, uh, and that is because of this better insured population on the general surgery side. So in general, I would say for financial reasons and for the satisfaction of the surgeons, and also to keep the trauma surgeons active in the operating room, um, I think the combination of a trauma service with an elective emergency general surgery service, as well as the ICU, would be very, very good. Um, there have been uh, published uh, experiences showing that critical care, for example, returns uh, a substantial amount of revenue, RVUs, and potentially revenue, to a trauma service uh, so that would be an additional consideration. It also provides, once again, an opportunity for uh, professional satisfaction for the surgeons so that they're doing a variety of different things and uh, not burning out by doing only trauma or predominantly trauma. So I find that to be an important consideration also for recruitment purposes, um, that, that you can bring in people who like to do a combination of things, and they may, they may do more trauma, um, one person may do more trauma than another, and one person may do more general surgery, but it, it provides an opportunity to have a balanced portfolio, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, for the various reasons I mentioned. Excellent. So what do you think that, that we as the individual trauma and acute care surgeon can do to sort of help the clinical enterprise of trauma be financially successful? So um, another very good question. I, you know, there's, there are situations where there is an opportunity to make an impact uh, favorably, and then there's others where there wouldn't be. And if you're, for example, in a, in a location where you're surrounded by a very, very heavily insured population, uh, mostly blunt trauma, and um, you can do both trauma and elective general surgery, I think you're going to be uh, fortunate and enjoy a very... Uh, nice bottom line, so to speak, whereas if you're in a downtown area where there's a very large uh, population of uh, unfortunate people who don't have insurance and who live in uh, in a violent uh, environment, uh, and you'll be doing a lot more penetrating trauma and, and likely will have a much harder time making your uh, finances come out positive. So besides that situation, let's look at 
the, the situation where probably most of us find ourselves, which is somewhere in between. My personal conviction is that it would be important for trauma surgeons to develop uh, areas of interest and expertise outside of trauma care, and whether that's critical care or general surgery, uh, or maybe uh, other uh, areas of expertise. Um, and it could be that it's research or administration or other areas that can provide a revenue stream so that you can continue to do the important work that trauma surgeons need to do, but you can also pay attention to the bottom line because the, the bills have to be paid, salaries have to be competitive. And so I encourage my, my team to identify areas of uh, potential interest and expertise where they could be successful. Um, for example, someone could become uh, an expert in abdominal wall reconstructions, do a lot of hernia repairs, get, become a referral practice for complex and recurrent hernias, um, and uh, build a successful referral practice in that sense that brings in revenue, brings in cases, uh, material for training residents, etc. cetera. Um, and that additional revenue uh, will make up for any potential uh, lack of revenue from a heavily uninsured trauma population, for example. Don't forget that if you are a trauma surgeon and you're at a facility uh, that is, you know, moderately large, there are lots of opportunities to become part of the administrative structure or the leadership structure. For example, I think trauma surgeons are very well equipped to work in the areas of quality and patient safety. And we've been doing very, very um, cutting-edge work in uh, quality and performance improvement for years and years. Um, so somebody who's interested in that field and who has the experience of being involved in, in PI and trauma care could easily find a home in the hospital's quality structure as a medical director or other employed uh, position, which would then bring in revenue. By the same token, I would say individuals who are very uh, good researchers, whether it's clinical or basic science research, could uh, help bring revenue in to uh, grants, contracts, um, and other uh, sort of successful uh, endeavors in the uh, fields of investigation and science. Um, so, the, so the trick in my mind is for the individual trauma surgeon to try to develop uh, not just their skills in trauma care, but additional skills in other areas. It's really no different than uh, diversifying your portfolio when you're investing for your retirement. I, I suspect there's always going to be a need for trauma surgeons, and I frequently say that I'll probably be able to work till I'm on a ventilator myself, but uh, I hope not to, uh, actually. But um, I think it's, it's very important for individual trauma surgeons to look for these opportunities where they can develop expertise as either uh, well-recognized experts in a particular part of surgery outside of trauma, critical care, uh, administration. Um, we have people in our uh, division who are recognized experts in education, and they have paid positions in the department or in the dean's office uh, to support educational functions. I think that's important. Um, it, it's useful in many different ways, and it certainly helps the bottom line of the division to have our sort of uh, cash flow be diversified and not reliant on any one area in an excessive manner. Excellent. I hope I answered your question. Yes, no, I think that's, that's excellent advice. Thank you. Um, so 
much has been made of the Affordable Care Act, and I think one of the overlooked areas are the provisions for trauma care. So how do you see the Affordable Care Act affecting the business side of trauma uh, in the future? Well, I think the uh, – like most – major uh, endeavors of this this magnitude and this impact, it's probably a, a mixed bag. It's a combination of things. I, my initial reactions were that since we have in trauma care such, and most of us have such a large population of uninsured patients, uh, it seemed logical to me that if everyone acquired insurance of some kind, then we would stand a chance of getting some uh, collections from pretty much every patient as opposed to having 30, 40% of our patients who either didn't pay us or didn't pay us well. Uh, by giving them all some form of insurance, then uh, we would be able to you know, increase our revenue substantially. Uh, I think it's a little too early to tell. Um, there have been some experiences in some states that have had the Medicaid expansions that suggest that it may be working that way, and in other cases that it wouldn't, that it wasn't. It's, it's still unclear yet whether the states that have not had Medicare expansions will see some benefit in terms of more patients getting insurance from the federal sites. Um, so I'd say it's still early to tell, but I'm holding out some hope that a broader uh, level of coverage uh, will result in more revenue for trauma centers because in the past we had so little money coming in from such a big chunk of our patients. Um, I'm not sure yet what the other um, parts of the uh, Affordable Care Act will mean for trauma centers. I suspect, though, that in the long term, uh, if the ACA pushes us more towards uh, accountable care organizations or some version of uh, partnerships between hospitals and physicians, I think in the long term that would be good for trauma because I personally feel that uh, as a trauma service, our best partner is the hospital for many reasons, not the least of which they have the deepest pockets, but they also share in the commitment to the mission. Mm-hmm. If your hospital uh, wants to be a trauma center, that's the best partner to have because their uh, mission is then aligned with your mission. Um, so I would say that if healthcare in this country is going to move towards more uh, ACO-type models or some kind of partnership between physicians and hospitals and and other entities, then it makes it a little bit easier for us because we don't have to worry about payment by individual patients who are injured. It becomes more a matter of population population health and being um, part of a cohort that's insured under an ACO model. So potentially there could be a great benefit to us in the long term if that were how it worked. I'm not completely sure that that's how it's going to work. And as you know, uh, the political situation in this country is best described as not very stable. Mm -hmm. So who knows what the next uh, group of lawmakers will do um, and who knows what the different states will do. Um, So I'm probably not a a good person to ask about the future of healthcare. Um, Besides the fact that as I'm getting older, I'm becoming slightly more cynical. I see. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Fockery, thank you. Um, Finally, taking the 30,000-foot view, what is the main message or piece of advice that you think every surgeon should know about the business of trauma? I think that the the overreaching um, 
message that I'd like to leave your listeners with is that we should take it upon ourselves to understand uh, the business of trauma uh, specifically and the business of healthcare in general uh, to a much greater degree than we have before as physicians and as trauma care providers. I, I, I think if you don't take the time to understand the, the rather complex uh, issues, um, then it's difficult for you to be in a reasonable negotiating position or to have a place at the table when the important decisions are being made. And that doesn't mean that every single member of a trauma service needs to be an expert uh, and, and a, uh, an MBA holder and an economics major. Uh, but it probably means that we all should have some level of understanding of that and that we should support the concepts that derive from the need to have a sustainable economic model. Um, it can't be that I'm just going to do what I think is right and somebody else can take care of making sure the bills are paid and making sure that we have a, a, a positive cash flow at the end of the year. I think it's everybody's business to be involved in the business of trauma at, at different levels, but to some degree everyone should have some level of understanding and commitment to ensuring that, that that part of the mission succeeds as well. All right. Well, on behalf of the East Career Development Section, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Fockery, for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm Brad Dennison. I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information. Dr. Fockery, this is great. This is Jamie Coleman. You know, one question that I have for you also is, you know, you just mentioned needing to have somebody who kind of is an expert or who does have an in-depth knowledge about the business side of things. So for someone who maybe is a new division chief or is looking to attain that role at some point in time in their career, what resources would you suggest for them to learn about these things? You know, they don't have an MBA currently or they don't have much of a background in this. How can someone gain that knowledge? Well, Jamie, that's a great question, and, and there, I think there's a lot of very interesting things that I've learned over the years about that. You know, when I first started, I was a trauma chief at Fairfax, um, oh, it must have been 18 years ago now. Um, I was really um, very, very naive about all of these things, and and I would ask people, they wouldn't know the answer, so I, I sort of began looking for these answers and digging, and, and most of the time it was it was blindly digging, um, but I did learn that there were a few very, very useful things that work. Um, I'd say in the immediate present for most people, um, I would look to find somebody in your hospital's finance department who is in the mid-level of management, not the CFO or one of the immediate subordinates of the CFO, but perhaps somebody who's a middle manager, and express your interest in learning more about how hospital accounting and how hospital finances function. Um, and I think you might be surprised by how willing they are to teach you and spend time with you, because that's what's happened with me. I've, I've identified over the years individuals who were business managers of units or managers of, of a particular uh, part of the hospital infrastructure, and they uh, were kind enough to teach me, literally, about these things, spend time refer me to places where I could read about things to understand them better. But what that does is it uh, puts you in the, uh, uh, in the midst of the operational accounting and finance apparatus of the hospital. It's not just theoretical stuff that's being put out there. They'll actually sit with you and show you numbers. And my suggestion would be to ask them to walk you through a P&L statement, a profit and loss statement, 
as well as explaining to you the concept of contribution margin, how they allocate indirect costs, and what they, what they care about day to day, cash on hand, margin. Um, and that would, I think, be a great help to the individual uh, who's a trauma surgeon who's trying to learn more because those are the key pieces of how they do their job. And it's a great place to start. Um, frequently, they will uh, try to talk to you about the complexities of cost accounting. That probably is too much for most of us. And every hospital runs it slightly differently because how they assign costs to different things varies tremendously. And especially indirect costs. As I was mentioning before, indirect costs are probably one of the most complex areas of hospital accounting because every hospital does it differently. And how they do it tremendously affects your bottom line. So one key area I learned about quickly by talking to these middle managers is if the assigned costs from the indirects is very large, you could all of a sudden go from making some money to losing money for the hospital. Hmm. That is one of the key things I think every one of us needs to pay attention to is how are they structuring our cost structure, especially how are they assigning indirects. And that's where contribution margin becomes so important. So that's one opportunity. Another one would be to try to go to – there are a variety of courses that one could take. Doing an MBA is a big, is a big endeavor, and, and I have not done one myself, although I'm thinking about it all the time. But I would say rather than doing a full MBA, you can take some courses, read books, uh, approach people who know the subject and have them tutor you on some of these concepts. Uh, there are medical director courses at the Trauma Center Association of America, for example, and at a couple of other organizations where you could participate in some of this uh, uh, learning. Uh, probably they're not adequate, I think. We probably need more. We probably need the trauma community to put together some additional courses on, on these matters, and perhaps that's something we should be doing um, in a coordinated manner among the different trauma groups. Um, and then finally, there's really no substitute for picking up a book on accounting and finance, um, of which there are a number, and reading. Not easy reading, by the way. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. I would not recommend you do it on call. You'll probably fall asleep. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to listening to you talk about billing with us next. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite.